welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So a few days ago, um, Colleen and the boys and I were watching a really interesting show. It was a show with a bunch of um, neuroscientists and, and researchers and talking about the, the intricacies of the brain and how we think and how we perceive and how we know. Um, and they were showing how our brains do tricks on ourselves how we fill in the gaps and make sense of the reality around us. They said that from the research that they have been able to pull together, it's it's estimated that at any time we only process in our brains about 1% of all of the data that is bombarding us. That we usually fill in the gaps and there's tests to show how we do this to make sense of everything and to create our perception of reality. I thought it was really interesting and and just seeing how all of that worked. I also was a little bit frustrated with the philosophical assumptions of some of those scientists because when they moved into their conclusions of what that meant, it was interesting to me because they had a lot of certainty even though they were functioning only off of 1%. (laughs) They hadn't applied the very reality that their data was showing upon themselves and their own assumptions and conclusions. But I would say that it's interesting because I, 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 I mean, I can't fight the data and the tests, but I, I also makes complete sense to me. And the thing is, is even though we construct a lot of how we comprehend and perceive reality, reality is not an illusion, as some philosophers would argue. At least I don't think so. But I do think much of our perception of it is, or our understanding of our perception of it is. Because the fact is, there is far more to reality than what we perceive. And as children of Adam, who like to pretend that we are gods, we are under the illusion that we have the perspective of God. That what we perceive and how we perceive it is clearly what is and all that is. And see, the problem is, is is you looked at the studies and the tests is that our brains are wired. We wire our own brains. We create neural pathways to take phenomenon and then fit it into what we expect to occur. We're always anticipating what will happen based upon the pathways that have formed and assumptions of of what will happen. Based upon the narratives that we tell ourselves. 
And when phenomena happens that does not fit our perception of reality, then we often re-explain it within the categories that our brains have already rewired themselves to fall within. What? See, did that happen? Did it not? Okay. Um, or we write it off as like a blip in the matrix. Or some of the studies that I looked into have revealed that when it doesn't fit within that framework, even though it happened, we don't see it. Our brains blind us to it. And I say all of that, one, because it was really interesting. But I think in some way it plays into the event that was celebrated by the church throughout the world on Thursday, and we commemorate today, the ascension of our Lord to heaven, the right hand of the Father. As I say, it was celebrated, but there's, in reality, very little attention often given to the ascension. There's not much celebration. I mean, you know, the, the crucifixion is a Good Friday. It's not very celebratory, but it's an important day. Easter is a big celebration. The incarnation with Christmas that has a big holiday. Probably most of you did not have a meal and a feast for Ascension Day. We didn't. If you did, that's awesome. But it's usually not given much attention and sometimes ignored and just bypassed. And yet... From the earliest church, it was considered an essential part of the gospel story. It caps off Luke's gospel here. Caps off Mark's gospel. It's put alongside the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Christ within the creed that we recite every Sunday. As I like to say, the creed follows the sermon because after I preach to you, you remind me, this is what we believe. And we say, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's seems to be so critical, yet so often misunderstood, or at least not understanding the significance of it. And why, if it is Jesus leaving, do we see in Luke that they leave worshiping and celebrating? Why would Jesus say in the Gospel of John, that it is for your benefit that I go away. So today, instead of walking through the passage, I, I want to just take an opportunity to focus on the claim, the doctrine of the ascension that is captured in our reading from Acts, captured in our gospel reading. And just look at what it is, as in what actually happened, what it means, and then why it is significant for us. First, what it is, which is what makes it so hard for us to stomach 
within the neural pathways that we've created on what we expect and what we understand our reality to be is the fact that the ascension was just like the resurrection and it was physical. We just spent all of Easter talking and reading all of these accounts reiterating that Jesus physically rose from the dead, that he was physically present, physically appeared, touched my wounds, eat some fish. Nothing changed up to this moment when he was standing before them. This was still the resurrected Lord. And yet, the physical Christ was taken into heaven. It's kind of mind-bending. Like, where is he? Where did he go? One thing I would say is that what often happens in our own imagination through, through art and through, like, flannel boards and cartoons and stuff is probably not correct. I'm almost certain it's not correct. This depiction of, of Jesus, you know, flying away up into the sky. Imagining that then he probably sped up and got exit velocity and was able to break out of Earth's gravitational pull. And then maybe went through some galaxies and up through space and then ended up somewhere <laughs> called heaven. <laughs> But that's what we picture in our mind whenever we have maybe a, 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 a narrative and understanding of our reality that is maybe different than what Scripture depicts. We need to understand the biblical understanding of heaven and the metaphorical use of sp- spatial language within Scripture to see what is happening here. First of all, heaven. It's a little bit confusing because in the Old Testament, there's heaven and there's the heavens. The heavens was the term that was used for everything up. (laughs) But heaven, heaven is used to describe not a place, but a realm. Heaven is the sphere of God's full unveiled presence. Heaven is where God's glory and presence is fully realized. In the Hebrew story, in a biblical story, we see in the beginning, in Genesis, heaven was right here. Heaven and earth were fully united. No veil. God walked fully and completely in the midst of the people. And yet, a veil, a division was created. And yet, we also see at the end of the story in Revelation is a picture not of spirits going to heaven, but heaven descending upon earth. The reuniting of what was once divided. We see in this in-between time that God kind of depicts 
what was and what was lost, but what will one day be again within the Holy of Holies within the temple, which was understood that in that place, that one particular area, almost as if the veil that divided us was specially thin there. And that's why nobody could enter in but the great high priest once a year. And there was a veil separating the Holy of Holies. Representing that veil that separates our realm and his now. To use more contemporary language, heaven is in some ways another dimension. That is not out there, but all around here, but we are separated because of our sin and fallenness. It's not part of that 1% that we currently can perceive. But it's the realm outside of space-time in which the God that is beyond and above space-time, his presence and glory is unmediated. But since the fall, there is a veil. And the use of spatial language up and above or down I mean, the language is used often, like we speak, the scriptures speak of God up above, heaven up above, Sheol or hell down below. But elsewhere, it talks about God being present everywhere. God is present in the depths. God is not up, but it's just language that is used in kind of a metaphorical way, the same way we do. Like, we're moving on up, like the Jeffersons. <laughs> Don't you love how I use really like culturally relevant, timely references from <laughs> early '90s and late '70s? But you know what I mean. Like we use that, like moving on up. Like, <laughs> we talk about ascending in the company. I mean, that might mean that you have an office higher up in the high-rise building, but we know what that means. And so we have this language that is being used as they're trying to make sense of something that is blowing away their framework. To try to use words to depict something that doesn't fit their neural pathways. And I don't think that we can fully comprehend exactly what happened, but I think there are some clear indications of what's important to know and what is happening in a deeper sense, within the language used. In Acts 1.9 that we read, it said, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. <clears throat> Luke, at the end of his gospel that we read, said, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And in Mark's account, it says that he was taken into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. Some important words here. One, it says that he was engulfed in a cloud. Forever, I always pictured that, like, you know, Jesus flying, hitting exit velocity. So it's like they saw him until he got through the clouds. The problem is, is in the desert region, there's not a lot of clouds very often. But it's just, that's what I'm picturing. He was taking them until you read the Old Testament. 
we see that the cloud was the way that they used to depict God's presence, his full Shekinah glory. It was depicted in Exodus that way, that the temple was, had, had the cloud appear in Chronicles and in Numbers. In Daniel, a cloud was used to represent that throughout Scripture, this idea of the cloud was almost heaven. It was God's full presence and glory. But he was engulfed in God's presence. He was engulfed in his glory. And they were no longer able to see him. Understood as entering into heaven at the right hand of the Father. Jesus didn't go to somewhere else in space-time, but it seems that God broke through the veil and was brought into the realm of God's full presence that is there. But in our fallenness, we can't perceive it. There's a veil that was still there, but Jesus has passed through it. See, I don't understand it, and I'm not going to pretend to understand it. But he did not go to another location in space-time, but from space-time to the realm of the eternal, to heaven, back to the Father. And this is profoundly mind-blowing. The ascension means that resurrected flesh and blood is now, right now, dwelling in God's midst in the realm of heaven. As I said, I cannot explain exactly how that works because it's outside of our framework and understanding. But the depiction of the ascension in Scripture, I think, does reveal what it means and why it's so significant. Quickly, I just am going to note three things that it means, though there is much more. First of all, the ascension means that Jesus is in control. Heaven is the realm of God. It is the source of all life. It is the control room for all of what we call existence. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, which is language that he is the one now running the show. Now that he is in that space and in that place, He is not king and lord of earth. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. We see, as we read in Acts 1 through 6, they still didn't get it. They're like, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, when are you going to take your throne? When are you going to throw out Caesar and become the Caesar of all Caesars? But the thing is, is if he would have remained and became the Caesar of all Caesars, that type of rule and reign would pale in comparison to the rule that was awaiting him at the right hand of the Father. 
Secondly, it means that Jesus is present. I know, it sounds odd. His ascension appearing as though it would make him more distant, it actually makes him more present. In the incarnation, somehow the divine was, was localized. We talk about the, the humiliation of, of being bound to the limitations of space and time. If Jesus remained, he would only be able to be present at one place at one time. But he speaks continually of as he goes to the right hand of the Father to prepare a place for us. That means that then he will be present in and through all of us, through all space and time, through his Holy Spirit. That's why in all of the Ascension accounts, it's tied to an emphasis on the sending of the Holy Spirit. As we saw in verses 4 through 5 and verses 8 in our passage, that's why Jesus said it was good that he's going away. Not that he would be more distant, but he would actually be more present with us. As he is preparing something for us in the realm of heaven. And finally, it means that Jesus is our representative. The author of Hebrews in 4.14 talks about the ascension and says that because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he now intercedes on our behalf. We have one in the heavenly realm representing us. But even more than that, Scripture speaks over and over again of his resurrection as the first fruits of all who are in, in him. Hebrews speaks of him as the forerunner. And this is what I think is completely mind-blowing. We see in the incarnation that we kind of comprehend a little bit better, at least it's easier for me to stomach, is the idea of in the incarnation where the two realms of, are united in the person of Christ, that God dwells physically with man. But the ascension means that a path has been made so that physical man may dwell with God. In his full presence within heaven. I mean, it, it is radical and it challenges a lot of our uh, most, most religions' spirituality that, uh, that, that assumes that at all the goal and the importance is to escape all of this, free ourselves from this, so that we can spiritually be united with the divine, with God. Or we can at least break free from this and achieve nirvana. And cease to deal with all of this. But the incarnation is pretty radical because it's saying that God's going to dwell in the midst of all of this. And the resurrection is pretty radical because it says God is going to redeem all of this. But in the ascension, it means that the physical, the flesh and blood is accepted and able to dwell in the full, unadulterated presence of God in the midst of heaven. That all that God made good will be made good again by his radical grace and redemption. And so concluding, I just leave with two reflections on the significance. One is theological and one is a little bit more practical for us. 
as we live in light of Jesus' incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension that we have celebrated over this Eastertide. First, the theological significance. The ascension is a critical part of the gospel proclamation placed right alongside of the incarnation, death, and resurrection. But it is also, as we saw in our reading and we see in the creeds, tied deeply to the one final part, the future aspect of Jesus' return. As the creed says, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. See, the ascension and the return is critical for us to understand the narrative of the good news and how it all ties together. What we have been celebrating and remembering over this past months. Because of sin, there is a veil. There's a separation between heaven and earth, between God's realm and creation, but that's not how It had to be, nor was it once. But then we see that in the midst of that veil, God, through his son, breaks in to our realm, our reality, dwelling with us in the frailty of our fallen creaturely state, taking on the limitations that come with that. He redeems us through taking on the death we brought upon ourselves and enduring the separation of, from the Father due to us. And as we celebrated on Easter, conquering sin and death by passing through death and coming out the other side. The resurrection. And then creating a path for us to be restored to the full presence of God. That we, as we were created to be, flesh and blood, can be in the presence of heaven. The unadulterated, full presence and glory of God as shown in the ascension. But then he will return again, bringing heaven with him. And as we see in the end of Revelation, heaven and earth once again are reunited. The veil completely destroyed The gates closed. The gates that were closed on that garden are no longer there. Maybe we'll reach 50%. But I think in that moment, we will perceive what's really real about our reality. If you notice, none of this is an escape plan to get out of a failed project, but it's a sovereign God redeeming everything and restoring what we have broken. As in the garden, the dwelling place of God is with man. And we see in the ascension, the dwelling place of man is with God. And finally, the significance for us. I mean, there's so much, and I'm not going to flesh it out said, Jesus is in control. That's really good news. I'm really glad for that. Because I'm not. I pretend I am, but I'm not. Reveals the goodness of our creatureliness. The physical matters. The minutia matters. And we have an advocate and representative in heaven. Interceding on our behalf. 
But if you notice in the ascension, it's also tied to a commission that's given to the church. Because it means that we have been entrusted, empowered, and empowered to continue the mission of redemption until he returns. It's interesting because Luke and Acts were both written by Luke to the same person, Theophilus. He ends his account of Luke in the Gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus did, the Gospel of Jesus' work here on earth with the ascension. And then he starts the book of Acts with the ascension. As we read, he starts that book of Acts saying that he is given in the first book all that Jesus began to do and teach. Inferring that the second book is all that Jesus will continue to do. But now through the church. See, the ascension is interesting because both it, end, it, it ends the Easter narrative. And it is also the beginning of the church. As we move into the rest of Acts, which is the beginning of our current reality. A reality that is radically changed by the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The reality that he continues his redemptive work at the right hand of the Father. And we await his glorious return. The ascension points to Jesus' reign and rule, which he is orchestrating and working now. And he left us, for whatever reason, to be witnesses, to proclaim the news of what he has done, and to live in light of that reign that is his at the right hand of the Father. And so next week, we move to that one last important historical event that blows everything up and sets it on fire. Pentecost. And then after that, we move into what's called ordinary time. It's a long period. And so we're going to spend the next months continuing that story, working through the book of Acts. Because what better for a new church plant than to walk through the planting of the church in light of the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord and the sending of the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And so, concluding Eastertide with the ascension, I will admit the ascension is hard to comprehend, especially within our fallen and limited perspective. But it is a critical part of the gospel narrative and is also the launching point for the church. It marks the transition into Christ's continued redemptive work, but now through the building of his church. And so let us end this Easter season, I think, with not a command, but more simply marveling and worshiping like the first disciples. And the almost hard-to-believe, amazing good news that Christ has died on our behalf. 
taking sin and the punishment that we have brought upon ourselves upon him. Christ has risen. Passing through death to the other side, conquering sin and death. That we might have and share in a resurrection like him. Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is in control, and he is sovereign, and he is Lord. And he has torn a hole through the veil so that that man's dwelling place might be with God. And he will come again, reuniting heaven and earth putting to right all that has been made wrong, revealing what his sovereign might and rule has been orchestrating all along. But until then, we marvel, we gaze, we trust, but we also have work to do, work that we don't do, but he does through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue.